Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Under the Wig. I'm Jasmine Arnell-Smith. And I'm Hannah King. Our episode today is brought to you by MSLS and the College of Law. The College of Law offers the largest range of flexible, practical legal training programs in Western Australia, with online, part-time and full-time study options and more than 10 start dates, you can fit PLT around your schedule. Google the College of Law to find more. Today's episode is with Tony Butti, a current member of the WA Legislative Assembly and a past law lecturer at Murdoch. So enjoy. Well, I guess like if you could just tell us who you are and yeah. how you keep yourself busy day to day and, and what you get up to. Okay, so my name's Tony Booty. Um, I'm the member for Armadale, which I've been since 2010 and uh, a minister in the McGowan government. So like, what did you do before becoming a politician? Right. Well, I was a legal academic for about 14 years, I think. Um, initially at the great... Uh, institution that you are studying at the moment, Murdoch Law <laughs> School. And then in 2007, I moved over to UWA Law School and until I was um, uh, elected in a by-election. And prior to going to, um, prior to being academic, prior to my employment at Murdoch, I was a, a human rights and public policy solicitor at the Aboriginal Legal Service. And prior to that, I did my articles and most of my restricted practice at um, a law firm called Dwight Durack, which I think still exists, but it's very different. Back then, it was uh, this was a this was the early 1990s. It was the uh, premier labour law firm in Perth. It was basically mm. what Slater Gordon are now. Right, Dwight Durack yeah. Back then, yeah. So what got you, I guess, what sort of piqued my interest there as well was just the um, Aboriginal Legal Service and what took you into yeah. that. Because yeah. um, I guess we also noticed, you know, we, we do a little bit of stalking, not going to lie, um, yeah. that you studied at um, Oxford and uh, just what you um, yeah. did your PhD there on, I guess, was um, also... In guardianship. With... And yeah, generation. guardianship, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so basically what happened, I was doing my articles at Dwight Durack and started my restrictive practice there because I was a mature age student by the time, you know, by the time I finished law school, I was about 31, I think, 32, I can't remember, around that age. Anyway, uh, I, was in, I wasn't overly enjoying private practice, to tell you the truth. It was okay. Yeah. I didn't, you know, some days were good, uh, some days, you know, a bit boring. And mm-hmm. there was this opportunity that came up for a human rights lawyer because uh, at law school, I really was very interested in international law and human rights law and so forth. But there's really, in WA, not really that many jobs in that avenue. Mm. Uh, but this opportunity, you know, human rights and public policy lawyer, I thought, wow. And at that time, what happened in Australia, there was a Royal Commission into the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody that came out in the early 1990s. As a result of that, the Keating government put a lot of money into Aboriginal legal services, not just to have lawyers representing people in court, at, you know, for criminal offences, but to try and see if we can make systemic changes. So, so it just seemed like, wow, you know, an opportunity. So I took it up and um, funny, well, not funny enough, um, I think my first day there, I, uh, the lawyer next to my office walked in, he was a senior lawyer, and he just popped a file on my desk and said, this is yours now. And I opened up, there was one sheet of paper and it just had <laughs> someone's name, 
few details said they had been removed to a mission. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do with this? He said, oh, you'll work it out. Anyway, wow. a few days later, the CEO of the Aboriginal Legal Service, Robert Riley, he uh, said, look, we really need to do a campaign about um, Stolen Generations, which it wasn't called Stolen Generations back then. And uh, so let's put an ad in a newspaper, you know, Aboriginal newspapers and radio and so forth to see if we can interview some people that were taken away. So we put the ad in. We expected we'll probably interview about 50 people if we were lucky. Well, you know, a couple of years later, by, by the end of 19, whatever it was, a couple of years later, I'd interviewed myself over 200 people and uh, the organisation had interviewed or taken uh, written evidence from about 500 odd people. And um, it was a very stress, obviously it was a real privilege and an honour to be able to do these interviews, but it was a very mm. stressful situation. And um, basically, I mean, after I left that, I couldn't do any interviews on any subject for about four or five years. Uh, wow. It was just, you know, just awful. I mean, I'd do it, but I didn't enjoy it. And at that time, there was a national inquiry set up uh, into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from the families that was run by the Human Rights Commission. Yes. And president, the president at that time was Ronald Wilson. So Ronald Wilson, who was WA's first High Court Justice and also a former Chancellor of Murdoch University. Mm -hmm. And um, so I prepared two submissions or two reports for that inquiry. And then I went into, you know, that, that inquiry handed down its report in 1997. And that's when I basically started at... Um, Murdoch Law School, and obviously one of the areas they wanted me to teach in was Aboriginal legal issues, and I taught mainly Aboriginal legal issues and um, uh, equity and trust. So that's how I got into that area, and that's when I went and did my PhD over Oxford. Um, yeah. With the idea of actually doing fiduciary duty and stolen generations. Right, but my okay. supervisor over there, who actually was an Australian, and I actually went to law school with his sister, and at AU, because I did my law degree at the Australian National University, uh, he convinced me, or we, we had a, an intellectual debate for a few weeks on it, to <laughs> look at guardianship law, So, which was great, because no one had really done looking at the origin of guardianship law and how that fitted into it. So that's yeah. what I did the uh, PhD on and, you know, published a book from it called Separated, which mm -hmm. then led me through the human rights uh, inquiry getting to know Sir Ronald Wilson a bit better. And then I wrote a biography on Sir Ronald Wilson, yes, uh, which is yeah. called A Matter of Conscience, which was absolutely fantastic because, uh, you know, I spent, I don't know, 20 hours probably doing interviews with him wow. and interviewed yeah. about another seven or eight high court justices. That's William mm. Dean, wow. Brennan, uh, Gibbs, Dawson, Kirby, and, you know, and there are a lot of other legal <laughs> yeah. fraternity people. So, yeah, it was great. Absolutely fantastic. And, and that's uh, the book you won um, the Premier's Book Award yeah. with as well, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yeah, the Sir Ronald Wilson one, won the uh, Premier, uh, the WA Premier's Book Award in 2007, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, we were sort of looking through, yeah, the, the books you've written and, and quite an extensive collection. I mean, I have to admit the one that sort of took us by surprise and we were like, what is this about? Was the uh, the Perth Mint Swindle. Um, I have oh, so yeah, many yeah, questions. Yeah. I've, I must confess, I actually didn't even know, to be honest, You're that something young. existed. Too I'm too, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what what sort of took you on that path? Because obviously uh, well, actually, I wasn't. Yeah. Okay, so I wasn't really intending to write that. What, what happened? I was very fortunate to receive basically a private fellowship from um, a foundation called the Louis St. John Johnson Foundation. The uh, person that set up the foundation had a real interest in the uh, in the Mickleberg brothers, which were the ones, the brothers yeah. that were convicted yeah. of the permit swindle. But eventually their, uh, the decision was how to be unsafe. Uh, so he said, would I do a book on it? So I didn't come there with any particular interest, but when he asked me to, and I looked at it and I thought, yeah, it looked interesting. So that's how I wrote that book. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So what was it sort of like doing your PhD at Oxford then and deciding yeah. to really yeah. focus in on an area of your interest? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was great for a number of reasons. Um, you know, obviously it's great for research area that you have an interest in, but also to be in the Oxford environment was, you know, yeah. just fantastic. And, um, yeah, so it was, um, I mean, although doing it, you, you'd be very lucky to meet a PhD student who at times hasn't struggled or had doubts that they were ever going to finish. Now, yeah. I yeah. definitely had a lot of doubts. About a year into it, I actually thought, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And I then remember my in-laws were going away. So I left the family home for a week to go to my in-laws house and house sit and just start writing. Yeah. And that was like February, early February. And by August of the same year, I had already, I'd written the draft, the whole draft. Wow. And completing everything in about two and a half years, which was at that time anyway, in the 10 fastest PhDs written at Oxford Law School. <laughs> Not saying it, was a, it wasn't a 10 wow, top quality, well done. <laughs> yeah. quality, but uh, as speed. Uh, oh, I, pure speed, yeah. But, and yeah. this is, a, this is a advice that I always give PhD students. Mm. It is just an exercise, a very important exercise, but don't think you are writing something that's going to change the world. That You can do that after you do your PhD. So when you moved to academic teaching at Murdoch, what was it like moving from working at ALS into mm. an academic environment? Yeah. Uh, look, it probably the, the, the contrast would have been probably great if it had gone from private practice to Murdoch, but ALS was in a way an incredibly unique uh, occupation because I was a, basically an academic lawyer then in a practice because I was doing a lot of research, uh, writing papers and so forth. But I mean, I just loved it at Murdoch, absolutely loved it. Um, it was, uh, being an academic, I just thought was brilliant. Yeah. Have you got any uh, funny stories at all from your time teaching uh, at Murdoch? Any? <laughs> uh, look, I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of funny stories, but what we used to, they used to do back then, which I don't think happens now, we used to have a law review every year. So students and staff used ah. to be engaged in, you know skits and so forth and yeah I still love doing that uh but um yeah I mean you know I, I look it's, it's 
testing my memory now, but yeah, it was just really, really enjoyable. <laughs> Loved it. And the my staff now in my electorate office and in my ministerial office have, have made fun of me because the amount of former students that I come across now is just mm. incredible. I guess that's probably a really um, cool position to be in, I guess, as, as an academic, you're watching people go through and yeah. complete their degree. And so you have this inside people's sort of early days and then Perth is a small world. And so it's, yeah, it gets that's right. it is. they're going to end up somewhere, but you had access to that first. Like, well, oh, I remember you when you were, yeah. and I was like, you know, <laughs> marking your equity assignment. <laughs> And so did you enjoy, I guess, like, was, was law sort of when you started it what you thought it was going to be? I mean, I know there's a lot of law students who I think, uh, I don't know, they watch Suits or they watch some sort yeah. of TV show and they, they yeah. start their first year, they get about a semester in and they go, oh, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, what was it for you? Because I had done two law units in my Masters of Law, uh, Masters of Industrial Relations, uh, even though it wasn't in the law school, I kind of had a feel to what it was going to be like, but I loved it. Uh, I went to Canberra, absolutely loved my three years there um, in uh, at the law school there. And uh, so, yeah, I never, no, never, I was never disappointed by law school, really enjoyed it. But I did find practice. I mean, I love to sit down and read a case and do mm. some research. You know, when you're in practice, you don't necessarily have that opportunity, especially when yeah. you're starting out. Um, so yeah, law school was not a disappointment. Loved law school. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of, I guess, like I said, the, the difficulties with practice or what really sort of made you go, I want to move on from this yeah. and I, I want to well, go. You know, sitting down, it, I mean, it was interesting to Dwight Durack, but Dwight Durack was a labor law firm. So we represented a lot of unions and also workers. So they didn't necessarily have a lot of money. Well, the, the workers didn't, uh, yeah. but you still had this target you had to meet each month mm, so I just yeah. you know having to you know record every six minutes who you're interviewing or bringing up and stuff like that yeah it just didn't it didn't really overly appeal to me uh but yeah so that was probably the yeah I think it was the time not not having the time to reflect intellectually reflect on cases as much as I would have liked to and um just the constant grind of having to reach your fillable target every month didn't yeah. seem to me to be yeah. I didn't want to be controlled by six minute units yeah yeah, yeah. no but now I don't want to put you off my, my son <laughs> yeah my, my oh, son's okay. lawyer Clayton Utes and he's in his he's done he, yes he's just been going for a year uh so I don't know this exactly it depends what law firm you go to I suppose you know, yeah, 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 some people love it, mm, yeah. No, and was there any difference then between like um, probably the industrial relations work, prior, private practice, into then working for ALS? Was oh, that yeah. did that take away some of the you know billable hours that grind well, yeah. was kind of a... it was great. I remember though when I went to the ALS for the first week, I would be sitting there with a pen in my hand to record my six minute units. I mean, the only thing that took, that I didn't end up really doing at ALS that I would have probably liked to have done a bit more was court work uh, yeah. because I was doing more of the research and interviewing and writing papers and, and reports. I didn't, I did a little bit of court work, but very, very little. Um, 
but it, no, it was it was great. Um, so, would you recommend for law students to make sure that they um, like gain an understanding of Aboriginal legal issues and put themselves out there to try and finding out more about these issues that yeah. might not be pushed at them during their degree? Very much so. Look, I think, look, for most law students to then become lawyers, you, if you're going to work in corporate law or, you know, in commercial law, you know, I mean, you've got to earn an income. Uh, so you've, a, lot, a lot of law graduates will not work in any area dealing with, um, you know, human rights or Aboriginal issues or whatever. So I think whatever law you're going to do after, I think it's just good to have an understanding on that part of our history and yeah. the issues faced by, not, and not just Indigenous people, uh, immigrants, refugees. I mean, Murdoch's, you know, you've, you've got the, the, uh, the clinic, uh, which yeah. is a great, a great thing. I mean, a brilliant thing at Murdoch. So, yeah, look, I, I just think it's important that we know that part of our history. I'm not saying that, you know, have to be a bleeding heart, um, human rights lawyer or whatever, but I, I think it just makes you a better, you know, all-round perspective. Because one of the problems you have as a lawyer in Perth, probably anywhere, it still is a pretty small profession. Mm. And if you're working on the terrace, you can become very narrow in the circle of people that you interact with. So yeah. I think while you've got the opportunity to law school, a law student, you know, you should try and do as many different things as possible. Yeah, no, absolutely. Cool. Expose yourself yeah. to things that, yeah, you're not necessarily going to come across in your, yeah, later career. Yeah. yeah. So I guess as just another question, your move into politics, what was it exactly that prompted you to be like? Yeah kind of stepping away from I guess what's I guess career seemingly been quite research focused academic focused in a way to really step into what is a uh, as you're explaining at the beginning a very involved role with yeah. a very diverse yeah. portfolio what was it that kind of pushed yeah. you to go into that well look, I mean I've been interested in politics you know since probably my late teens and early 20s so I, was, I mean I was just interested in politics but becoming an academic and, you know, studying laws and teaching about laws, I thought it'd be nice to actually be involved in the making of laws. Mm. And as a legislator, yeah. you make laws. Uh, but if someone said what was my motivation for getting into politics, I would say it was uh, an aim to probably be involved in policy, educational education policy, because I think that, the education system is such an important factor in people's future lives and opportunities. And uh, it's one area where governments can make a positive, state governments can make a positive impact on people's lives. And I just look at my own situation. I'm a, my parents, you know, Italian immigrant father, uh, mother of Italian parents were born in Australia. Both of them wouldn't have had, they would have only had primary school education. Mm. I'm the youngest of four kids and I'm the only one that went above year 10 at high school. Wow. And my life opportunities and experiences are just chalk and cheese to my, my siblings. I mean, it's just yeah. unbelievably different. And that's all been put down to education, you know. Um, so I just saw it as incredibly important and representing and living out in the Armadale region, 
you know, I see the need for everyone to have an opportunity to have a mm. better education. Yeah, yeah. So that was the motivation. But having now said that, I don't know if I'd want to be education minister. Yeah, <laughs> um, interesting. Uh, I mean, it'd be, you know, it, it'd be a challenge, but, um, yeah, it's not something that I pray for. But if it happened, it happened. Uh, probably more, you know, I mean, I'm just happy to be a minister. Uh, all the yeah. portfolios are interesting. But, yeah, so I think it was, look, I, had a, I just had an innate interest in politics and, you know, being an academic, I just wanted to make laws and, you know, really looked at, it, you know, I wanted to improve the education system and also just improve, try and improve opportunities and assistance to people from, you know, marginalised groups and lower socioeconomic groups. Yeah. 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 So what would you say would be the biggest reform in our current education system that you would push? <laughs> That's a hard one. Um, part of most of our schools are, are very good in the sense yeah. that you know governments of both persuasions have put money into schools, but it's more than that. It's the need to try and link the family and the school together. Mm-hmm. So it's just look, it, it's it's my my three kids went to private schools. I mean, I didn't. I went to state schools. But my kids went to private schools and I look at the opportunities they have had vis-a-vis some of the kids I observe in some of the schools that I represent. And it's not just, it's not necessarily the school facilities, it's often the parents and the families. So the families, a lot of these private schools and also, you know, some of the, you know, the well-off schools, state schools like Applecross and Williton and so mm-hmm. forth. Yeah. The teachers, uh, the parents are more involved in the school. They have more resources to raise money for the school. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. So I'd like to see how we can try and bring the school closer to the parents and families and the community. And one way you yeah. do that is a thing called full-service schools, which we have mm-hmm. done. I wrote a paper on this a few years ago, and, and – Sue Ellery, the current minister, has been very good on this, but it's, it's, it's only been done in, in stages because it involves a lot of money, is to use the school as a fulcrum to bring in other services to the school and, you know, in a full-blown full-service school model that they have in some places in England, you reintroduce classes like night school and so forth for the, teacher, uh, for the parents to come right, and also allow the school facilities to be used by the community. Because, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know there's issues about liability and insurance and so forth, so it's not easy. Mm. I'm not saying it's easy, but, you know, some schools have great facilities, like sporting mm. facilities, that lay dormant for six months a year where you have sporting yeah, yeah. clubs that are battling to, you know, have a change room or an open yeah. play on. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, that kind of leads into that, that other topic of the education gap, and I mean, I've had... A, a few small privilege experiences with a volunteer nonprofit that um, called Teach Loan Grow that goes out to regional schools in WA uh, and for a week sends university students to just do some one-on-one tutoring. Um, and I guess that's been a real experience and in one in terms of like for someone like myself who did have the opportunity to go to a private school to going to, I went to Marble Bar recently oh, to a wow. school that is, you know, um, I think to have a, 
full total enrollment of about 25 students year uh, kindy to year 12 um, with a 50% attendance rate. Um, And so, yeah, so I guess how does that or uh, you've got had an interest in education and also then in terms of that plays into especially in regional communities like Indigenous um, rights and, and culture and around that. What's your sort of opinion on the education gap in a way and how that's moving? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, you know, this is part of that, what they call the closing the gap. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, Mother Bar would have been an example. Yeah, look, it is really difficult. So we need to try and we need to get those kids at school. Yeah. To school. That's because unless they come to school, they can't be taught. But when there's so much happening in the, in the family lives, it's, it's really, really difficult. Uh, so where do you address it? So in some, in some way, you don't actually address it at the education level. You need to address it in the housing level or the, uh, you know, whether yeah. the parents have got employment or there's, yeah. is there issue of violence at home and so forth. I mean, if all those things are happening, it's very hard to have a kid coming to school and being able to sit down and learn. So yeah. we, there needs to be a coordination. So there needs to be a coordination between the health system, the, the housing system uh, and the education system come together. Otherwise, that gap yes. will be very hard yeah. to reduce. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, really interesting. Um, I guess just on like a completely random point to kind of um, step aside, uh, we noticed um, were you in the Navy Reserve or something like oh, that yeah, at, at yeah. some yes. point? Yeah. yeah, we're reading through. You've done an insane amount of things throughout your <laughs> uh, time, yeah. and we were like, okay, <laughs> something else. Yeah. What was what was that? Yeah, look, um, when I was teaching at UWA Law School, one of my colleagues was in the Air Force Reserves, and yeah. we were just talking, and you know. Yeah, I mean, the more law related to engagement of war and, you know, humanitarian law is really interesting. And I started thinking, I thought, yeah, this wouldn't be a bad thing to have a go at. You know, I would encourage, you know, you could look at, I mean, it's a good thing to have on your, you know, probably to have on your resume and a great experience. Yeah. Um, but it does take a bit of time, you know. Yes. Yes, so what, yeah, it does. What is involved in being a legal officer? Okay, so I don't really have no conceptual understanding of it. Yeah, okay, when you start off, uh, legal officer is that what you would end up doing. You might represent, you know, like it was in the Navy, a sailor that has a has to come up before a disciplinary board because they've done something, so you might represent mm. them or mm. you might represent the Navy in, prose- you know, in prosecuting them. Right, okay. Uh, so there are those matters and then there's... Obviously, providing a brief uh, way, if you can work your way up, the former dean at UWA Law School, Stuart Kay, he's quite high up in the uh, legal fraternity of the law of the of the Navy. Uh, so he provides advice on international law, um, humanitarian law. There's um, an academic over in Queensland, Professor Devro. He actually was engaged in. Um, he flew over in the uh, Gulf War, the first or the second Gulf War, provide advice wow. to the American Army about, wow. you know, rules around engagement and so forth. Right. So, okay. And so, so, one yeah. level is just providing legal representation to mm. sailors or, you know, Army people, whoever. And then if you work your way up, you can get more involved in being like a barrister, really. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And in an element of international law as well, yeah. which is, yeah. is quite insane. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
So how does the practice of working as a legal officer compare to um, usual legal practice, like on the terrace? Well, one thing is that you have a uniform. (laughs) 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 You have to comply with, you know, the rules and regulations and discipline of the service that you are a member of. And you have to do, you know, to be a legal officer, you you know, you are a, a Navy officer. So obviously mm. you have to be able to comply with the requirements of being able to be fit, you know, a certain fitness level. Uh, if you're in the Navy, yeah. you have to swim. You have to do the <laughs> yeah. survival schools. So the legal work is, you know, a lawyer Only is a lawyer a is a lawyer. It. But yeah. it's, yes. it's yeah. the other part of it. Uh, yeah. But obviously, if you're a reservist, it's a bit different than if you are in it full time. But not yeah. a lot, in the sense, uh, you know, the reservists will often uh, maybe get seconded for a period of time working on a naval base or even sometimes mm-hmm. on a ship. Yeah, wow. Yeah, no. So I would say from your career as a whole through politics and the practice of law, what advice would you give your younger self? I wish my younger self was able to look back on what was going to happen. It was, I wish my younger self knew what I know now, but of course right. we don't do it. Uh, yeah. I look, I, okay, what I would do, what I would say is never say no to an opportunity that may come up. Yeah. Um, and yeah. don't look at why you should do it rather than why you should not do it. Yeah. yeah right? no, absolutely. Basically, that's it. Why you, you know, I mean, obviously you need to think, don't, you know, don't be hot-headed about it and just fly off, but look at why you should do it rather than why you shouldn't do it. Yeah. And secondly, don't think that you are always right <laughs> um, and, try and try and listen to the other point of view. And thirdly, if I if I can give a third piece of advice, don't be too judgmental. Mm. Because, yeah. well, at an interview, don't be too judgmental because you don't know what that other person, what's going through their lives. And I guess, do you have any advice specifically for um, law students while they're studying? Any, like, yeah. obviously coming from the perspective of someone who has studied law and someone who has taught yeah. it. Um, uh, okay. Any tips? Well, how, do, how do we win on our assignments? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, that's, that's a difficult one. Do more research than you think you need to do. Yeah. Because I think yeah. often, you know, but also while the study of law, you know, I didn't really find this, but while the study of law and law school can really be very demanding and stressful. I found it demanding and stressful, because uh, it is very heavy. Uh, try to see this is a, re- a really unique opportunity that you have and you may think oh at times I really don't like this it's going to be a lot you're a lot more freedom than you're going to have when you're out there in practice world Mm. yeah so look and and try and really enjoy the law it sometimes it's difficult but really try and enjoy it and read as read as widely as possible read I know students don't do it and it's difficult because of time for students to read cases a lot of students won't read cases. Yeah. Read cases. You can't read every case, obviously. But try yeah. and read some cases. But you'll, it'll be amazing how that will improve your legal knowledge and your legal writing. So read cases. 
But try and explore beyond that. Uh, read books that talk about legal theory and and yeah. law and society. Yeah. I really, if I had to give you one piece of advice, read up on legal theory. Right, okay. Even if you're not studying it. Because I think it just helps your mind. It helps you develop some concepts about law. Yeah, and really, I guess, look yeah. at things through a different perspective and a different lens yeah. if you have that sort of backing it as yeah. opposed to just I'm ticking off syllabus items. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time, yeah. Tony. It's thank been you. an absolute yeah. thank pleasure you so much. talking yeah. to you. We wish to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation and pay our respect to elders past and present. We respect the knowledge and laws that traditional elders and Aboriginal people in this place hold and pass on from generation to generation. We'd also like to acknowledge the country that you are listening on and pay our respect to any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people that are listening today. Thanks to our presenting sponsor, the College of Law. Follow Murdoch Student Law Society on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on our next episodes.